Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I share my recent webinar with the International Society for Quality of Life Studies titled Designing Meaningful Work During COVID-19, Implications for Managers and the Future of Work. right over to our presenter today, Dr. Westover. Thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to be hosted for this webinar. Uh, I'm excited to have the chance to share uh, some research with you, but also, and probably more importantly, the practical applications of that research. Uh, for anyone who's interested, um, I will also be presenting a more research-oriented uh, presentation on a similar topic at the uh, COVID uh, conference that's happening um, later this summer. Um, so this presentation today will be more practitioner oriented, uh, more practical, and like how do we take the, the findings of this research uh, to make a difference in uh, the world of work uh, right now as we find ourselves amidst this COVID pandemic. Uh, I just wanted to point out, I just shared a couple links uh, the first one is the slide deck. I'll be screen sharing here in a minute, so you can follow along with me, um, but this will take you to a, a PDF in my Google Drive, um, so you can have um, the slide deck if you want. And then the second link is uh, a report uh, that my consulting firm put out, um, which is a, a practitioner-oriented report, and uh, much of uh, the questions and content that we'll be discussing today uh, come from that. Uh, again, I'm not going to be going into all the data uh, that's in the report, uh, but if you want more background and a little bit more thorough understanding of where I'm coming from and perhaps what we don't have time to discuss today, uh, please uh, check that out. And as always, um, you know, I hope everyone will feel willing to ask questions, uh, reach out to me um, during uh, the presentation. Uh, I'm happy to be interrupted and uh, you can uh, share questions and I can try to elaborate if necessary, uh, but, or we can do it during Q&A or we can you know, catch me offline afterwards and I'd be uh, really happy to do that. Okay, so now I'm gonna do a screen share. Uh, if I can get this up. Okay, I think that should be working. It appears to be working on my end. Um, let me put that down. Okay, so the topic for today is designing meaningful work during COVID. Uh, of course, we hopefully are, are working to design meaningful work uh, at any time, but I think there's particular challenges right now as we're facing not only the stresses and anxieties around the pandemic and trying to figure out how to do virtual work, 
but also balancing that, you know, thinking about the traditional discussions around work-life balance, but now we're talking about work-life, family, school, you know, everything balance um, that we're trying to juggle at home, and that brings with it a lot of anxieties and stresses and challenges. Uh, a lot of uh, working remotely isn't new. People have been working remotely and people have been managing remote teams for a long time, but my guess is that the vast majority of managers uh, who are now thrust into roles of, of managing remote workers have not really experienced that much before. And so finding ways to do that effectively and, and um, designing meaningful work for those individuals remotely is, is a challenge. Um, so we're gonna be talking about those types of issues and you know, overall implications for managers and the future of work. Um, I appreciated the introduction. Uh, I've, in addition to my ad academic role, I, I see myself as a scholar practitioner. So I'm, a, I'm a, an associate professor. I've been at my university for about 12 years. I'm chair of the department. Uh, I'm also uh, a practitioner and I have a, my own research firm. I'm managing partner principal at Human Capital Innovations, LLC. And I've been doing this for 20 years, uh, working with organizations uh, to help them uh, enhance their leadership, their organizational development and change management initiatives to design meaningful work uh, and those sorts of things. I'm also in one of my roles on my campus. I'm the academic director of the Center for Social Impact. Uh, that's something I'm very passionate about is finding ways um, to connect uh, individuals in their communities uh, to purpose and broader uh, social impact initiatives and outcomes, uh, but also within the workplace to, to do that and help employees have those same connections. I'm also a faculty fellow for ethics and public life in the UVU Center for Social Impact. So what we're gonna cover today is really a summary, a high level summary of a series of studies that I conducted over the last few years comparing job satisfaction and its determinants across 37 countries using data from the International Social Survey Program work orientations modules. Um, there's four modules of work orientations data in the International Social Survey Program uh, dating all the way back to 1989 and then 97 uh, and then 2005 and then, then 2015. Um, so I'm, I'm, uh, these studies are all based on the most recent wave of work orientations data in 2015. There will be another wave um, coming out in a couple years. Um, I won't be doing any sort of longitudinal exploration today, uh, but if, if you're interested in this kind of data, there, it's out there and you can utilize it and, and uh, there's lots of interesting insights uh, to be gained from it. The most recent wave had 37 countries uh, involved and it explores various work-life balance, uh, job, autonomy, job, job autonomy, meaningful work indicators, and the related considerations for managers as uh, they work to design work, including their remote work. We know that well-designed jobs that provide meaning and purpose to employees, the autonomy to determine how they perform their work, uh, and that provide work-life balance benefits are proven to drive higher levels of worker satisfaction and employee engagement, which, which those outcomes are, are connected to so many other positive benefits for workers and employers alike. Productivity, increased innovation and creativity, lower job turnover and absenteeism, lower withdrawal cognitions. Um, so really it's a no brainer that organizations should want to try to increase um, satisfaction and engagement levels uh, and drive, those, drive that through meaningful work. So to start, I wanted to really briefly lay out the case for the importance of a people-centered organization. We talk 
all the time about other forms of capital within organizations. So if you've taken Econ 101, you know we have uh, plant equipment property, we have financial capital, we have intellectual property, and we have human capital. So we have all these different forms and organizations put a lot of time and effort into um, acquiring, maintaining, um, and sustaining these various forms of capital. Uh, I, I once worked in a factory when I was saving up money to go to college and in this factory, we had these huge press machines um, to shape and form different components. And these machines cost millions of dollars. And you better believe that the organization um, put a lot of attention to the, this machinery. They made sure it was maintained, updated. Um, they, they made sure that there were a lot of quality controls in place to ensure that what, what came out um, was what they wanted. And so the question for me is why why would an organization be willing to invest so much into the maintenance and development of these other forms of capital? But sometimes we just forget about that human piece. We take it for granted and we say, well, we're paying them. So they should be grateful for their job. And then they, and lots of organizations kind of leave it at that. Um, and, and that's just not enough. So uh, the human capital perspective will see the people within the organization as perhaps its greatest asset, or at least on par with this other, forms of capital uh, in that it, the people deserve to be uh, invested in. They deserve to be valued and appreciated and given every opportunity to succeed. Uh, so when we think about a people-centered organization, we think about the, the overlap of uh, the, the policies, procedures, practices, the systems within an organization that can help to develop and maintain a, a people-centered culture that will help people feel valued, appreciated, uh, and empowered to do their best possible work. So that's what we're really shooting for in any organization at any time. The question now is how, how do we continue to do that within a COVID environment and virtual work? Another um, quick slide I wanted to share, there's a lot of research behind every arrow that you see in this graph and, or in this uh, figure. And there's a lot of additional research uh, and other outcomes that aren't even mentioned here. So this is just a quick snapshot of, of just uh, some of the relationships. But as we have meaningful work, interesting work, that has been shown again and again and again in thousands of studies um, to increase worker satisfaction and engagement. That lowers absenteeism, which lowers cost and increased profits. It lowers turnover rates, which is super expensive for companies. That lowers cost and increased profits but it also satisfied and engaged workers lead to satisfied, engaged, loyal, and committed customers. So if we have satisfied customers, that leads, leads to higher sales, higher profits. On the other side of the, the figure, you can see knowledge sharing. So if we have a people-centric uh, environment uh, where, where people feel safe, they feel like they can try things out, they can fall forward, fail fast, and then learn from any failures to drive the next innovation. When we create that kind of an environment, um, that's what I would call a knowledge sharing environment. That leads to greater innovations, greater productivities, which lead to higher qualities, higher customer satisfaction, higher sales, higher profits. Um, and ultimately, I think there's a strong case to be made for a people-centric organization just intrinsically. Like we should, we should recognize the humanity of the people within organizations. I firmly believe that. 
Um, but I also recognize that I have to talk the language of CEOs and C-suite executives who often uh, aren't thinking that way. They're thinking about the bottom line. They're thinking about profits. They're thinking about um, uh, uh, shareholder returns and such. And so there's so much data to, to demonstrate the value of meaningful work, interesting work, a knowledge sharing environment um, for other positive human outcomes uh, for employees. Uh, but even taking all of that away, it's, it's crystal clear that these types of organizations will attract and retain better employees, they will be more innovative, and they will lead to greater sustainability and higher profits. Uh, and so that's something we, we really uh, need to make the business case. What's the ROI of a people-centric organization and meaningful work? Uh, because it's there. And, and if we can communicate that to administrators, to executives, uh, to various leaders within organizations, we can help convince them to invest into their people the same way they invest to maintain, to acquire and maintain other forms of capital. Now, this COVID situation has thrust us forward into embracing technological innovations. We already knew that there were a lot of technological innovations influencing the shifting future of work and, the, and changing working conditions. Uh, we have artificial intelligence and machine learning that's been threatening to disrupt industries and displace workers for a long time. And due to um, Compute incre uh, exponentially increasing computer uh, computing capacity and storage capacity. Uh, the, the advances in, in these technological innovations has just been skyrocketing. And so, what was even possible two years ago with AI and machine learning um, is exponentially higher today, and it will be way higher a year from now, and you know, five years from now. And so, we have to think about those considerations. We have to think about uh, other technologies that could influence uh, the nature of of work and how we communicate with each other. Uh, but let's just take this COVID environment right now. Right now, um, many or, well, let me step back for a second. Prior to the pandemic and prior to travel restrictions, prior to um, uh, organizations sending everyone home and having people work remotely, there certainly were remote workers, uh, but most organizations uh, viewed that with skepticism uh, and they viewed that with, uh, you know, a lot of uncertainty. They, 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 they were worried about, would, would my employees actually do the work that needs to be done when they're off on their own and when I'm not there to look over their shoulder and monitor them? Um, and so not having people physically in the same location, there was concern about how, how would that play out? Uh, additionally, work, a lot of workers felt the same way. So um, there were polls that showed pre-COVID, uh, a lot of employees that didn't want to work remotely, they felt like that that they wouldn't be as effective, they wouldn't be as productive. Uh, and now that we've been in this for three or four months, there was another poll that came out recently that, that said that it had flipped pretty much almost on its head to show that the vast majority of employees now would actually like to have at least some of their work done remotely in the future, uh, if not all of it. Um, and so, and, and employers have experienced the same thing. They, they've realized as we've been thrust into this situation that it actually is possible to manage remote teams effectively, to help employees uh, work remotely effectively and with high levels of productivity. And of course there's trade-offs, but you know, there, in some cases it actually, remote work can lead to a lot of productivity enhancements and improvements. Um, and so embracing things like Zoom, like we're using today, uh, the fact that we can meet people from around the world 
uh, and I'm sitting in the corner of my bedroom to present to all of you uh, in this environment is is awesome. It's amazing. And I was going to be traveling um, to this conference uh, here in another later this summer. And of course, it, that the faith, the in-person conference was canceled, but there's still going to be a virtual conference. And there, there's trade-offs to that, but we'll largely be able to still uh, relay our, our findings, our research, have interesting discussions and interact with each other. And the same thing is happening in workplaces across the world um, as they realize that these technologies actually can be utilized. So we're being thrust into the future of work a little bit more rapidly than perhaps we would have been had the pandemic not hit. But those technologies are there. We're learning how to utilize them effectively and they're only gonna continue to increase over time. And so we need to make sure that we think um, carefully about how we're gonna leverage those uh, so that we can have our best remote workforce possible. Uh, I also just really quickly wanted, you know, in terms of the shifting geopolit geopolitical, socioeconomic uh, shifting landscape across the globe and technological disruptions, the future of work is shifting. And so what is good, a uh, well-designed workplace now versus, you know, in the, within the pandemic and when we come out of the pandemic five years, 10 years from now may look very different. But uh, industry experts agree that there are some fundamental um, skills, competencies, and capabilities that are going to be essential in the future of work. Uh, and so I think it's important that we consider these as we're trying to, to design meaningful work moving into the future. Um, uh, we're going to be in an increasing, increasingly computational world, uh, superstructured, huge organizations, even increased global interconnectivity, um, new media ecology, rise of machines and systems, as I mentioned, uh, people are living longer. So that's the context on the outside. Within that context, we have these skills. Indis additional cognitive load management. People are overwhelmed with information. People are, are bombarded with, with stimuli. So we need to figure out ways to manage um, our cognitive load better. Virtual collaboration, such as through Zoom, um, some of the disruptive technologies that are coming out, you know, we already, we've had um, holograms for a long time. They've only gotten better and better, but the technology like virtual presence, uh, which is, which exists and it's getting better, um, you know, something like that where it can actually feel like we're in the room together rather than looking at each other through the screen, um, through Zoom, uh, that, that would be a game changer, right? So learning how to virtually collaborate effectively um, new media literacy, not just social media, but there will be new forms of, of media that we haven't even conceived of yet. Cross-cultural competencies are important in an interconnected world. Uh, we need to have adaptive um, thinking that, you know, we can pivot quickly, we can be adaptive and reflexive. Um, we need to be able to make meaning and sense out of everything that's going on around us. Uh, systems thinking, design thinking, um, <clears throat> uh, equity design thinking. Uh, within you know a heightened um, uh, social uh, political landscape, uh, for example, in the U.S. right now, race relations, um, uh, discussions over LGBTQ plus issues, uh, and just political tensions are super high. And we need to be to have an equity mindset. We need to have a cross-cultural mindset. We need to look at whole systems, um, not elements in isolation. And we need to have transdisciplinarity or interdisciplinarity. Um, so we can't just be siloed uh, in the future of work. 
Uh, we have to be able to connect across, you know, across a matrix or a latticed organizational structure um, so that we can um, connect with the right people, the right expertise, and, and drive innovative outcomes. So with all of that as a little bit of a background, um, I, I now want to shift gears and, and talk about this report um, that Human Capital Innovations put out a couple weeks ago. Um, I authored this with my colleague, Maureen Andrade, and this summarizes, <clears throat> excuse me, um, seven different uh, research studies that were published in academic journals uh, on these various aspects of the nature of work, the future of work. Um, and then we, we have uh, implications and application um, to managers. So I invite you, I shared the link in the chat, and so I invite you to look at the report in, in its entirety if you're interested. Uh, here you can see the countries that were included in the 37 uh, countries in the ISSP uh, data. Uh, and as I mentioned already, um, this, the, the work orientations module includes a lot of data about different aspects of work. Um, what I keyed in on were things related to intrinsic motivators, extrinsic motivators, uh, workplace relation motivators, uh, work-life balance motivators, and, and then a series of, of demographic variables, organizational structural variables, uh, and then I pulled in um, outside data from other sources like the OECD, um, World Factbook, uh, and, and other um, country level, country contextual data to help uh, understand why we, the differences and similarities we see across countries in terms of the motivating factors, the drivers and the, the more salient factors in driving uh, worker satisfaction and engagement. Uh, and so in the report, you can see a descriptive review of some of those findings. Um, if you go to the HCI website, you can find links um, in, the, in the research area, you can find links out to all of our research articles, um, to these academic peer-reviewed articles, and, and, and see the, the thorough methodology and see the, the, full, um, the full analyses, um, regression analyses and, and descriptive analyses and everything um, that are there. The report is practitioner oriented, so it really only has uh, uh, some of the descriptive analyses. Um, and then from those, I derived uh, questions for organizational leaders. And that's the real goal is, is how do we help organizational leaders think, um, you know, they're not going to wade through my academic articles. You know, I, it, it's just not going to happen. Um, they may not even understand, you know, the methodologies or the statistics. Um, and so I need to find ways to communicate effectively those core findings, those key issues in ways that will resonate with organizational leaders so they can actually do something with it. So they can actually apply it and make um, things better for their employees. Um, so in the following slides, um, there are some questions that uh, are posed for organizational leaders, and I, and I share those with you to, to start springboarding us into our discussion, um, and we can explore together, you know, what does it look like to have meaningful work in a COVID environment? Okay, so first of all, um, meet, meaningful work specifically, um, there's, there's several variables related to a meaningful work within the ISSP data. Um, interesting work is super important. Um, also, the sense that an employee has that their job actually benefits broader society. Um, does, their, does their work have a, a bigger purpose? 
uh, do, do they, especially for millennial and Gen Z workers, they have a desire to make a, a, an impact in the world around them and not just show up for a job, clock in, clock out, and then leave. Um, so for managers, we think about questions like, why does it matter if, if employees find their work interesting? You know, I'm paying them money, they show up, they should just do the work. Uh, but it does matter. The research clearly shows that it does matter. So then the question, you shift the question and you ask, how can I make my, uh, how can I design jobs so that my employees find their work more interesting? And the answer is not going to be universal. There's no quick fix to that. In part, you need to understand your people. You need to understand your employees, understand their motivators and what drives them. And what might be super salient for one employee on your team might not be as salient for another. Um, what one person finds purposeful, meaningful, and interesting, um, another may not. And so, so a leader needs to self-reflect and think about their team and their people and, and better understand how they can uh, drive uh, more meaningful work uh, for them. If I'm a manager, I'm asking myself, how can I demonstrate to my employees that their work benefits the broader society? Um, going way, way, way back in job satisfaction research, uh, there's something called the job characteristics model. And within uh, the job characteristics model, uh, that's one of those core elements is do you, do you see within the work that you perform a broader purpose behind it? Um, that research has been replicated thousands of times in slight variations in different forms, but, but what is crystal clear is that people want to benefit the broader society through their work. Um, when I, I already mentioned I worked in a factory. When I worked in the factory, <clears throat> um, you know, I was doing pretty menial labor. I, I, it was, it was uh, blue collar, physical, um, dirty, grimy, and it, it, you know, it's not exactly what I would call the epitome of like a meaningful type of job. In fact, I, I was doing it with the purpose of saving money to go to college so I would never have to do a job like that again. Um, now, some people like those kind of jobs and that's just fine. So I don't mean to, to, to be dismissive of that kind of work. All work has meaning and is valuable. <clears throat> but I knew for me that that wasn't the kind of work I wanted to be doing long term. But as I think back now, and I think, how, what could the organization have done, even within an, uh, a, fac a factory environment, what could the, the, my supervisor um, management, uh, what could HR have done to make work more meaningful and interesting? Uh, one of those things would have been to just help communicate to me the, the why what I was doing was important. Um, and, and they didn't do that. You know, I just showed up, I clocked in, I, I went and I, you know, worked at a press machine or I worked on a welder or I, you know, I did these things and, and there's, you know, some satisfaction in seeing the, the product of, of my, of my labor, but I didn't know what came from it really. I didn't really know what, what I was doing, how it connected to what other people were doing and ultimately what, what the final outcome was. I just knew generally speaking what the factory did, what we can the general products we type, we produce, but that was about it. So it was a huge miss opportunity to design more meaningful work on the part of the organization that would have only required a more clear communication. Uh, how do employees feel about their work? So if I'm asking myself, how does my team feel about the work that they perform? Is it menial work? Is it mind numbing work? Um, if I mean, to a certain extent, we all have to do some of that. Uh, as a professor, I love my job. The thing I hate the most about my job is, grading, right? I, I, 
I don't love grading. Um, and sometimes it does feel kind of uh, just like I'm going, like, like I'm just drudging through to try to get these papers graded to provide feedback for students. Um, so we all have that. We all have different elements like that. Um, but we need to understand how our, how our employees understand those things. How can I better design jobs uh, of my team so the work they do is more meaningful, right? Okay, moving, shifting to autonomy. Tons of research about job autonomy and the importance of job autonomy. In my own uh, analyses in these seven studies that I've referenced, um, interesting work in job autonomy along with relations with management are the, the number one factors of, across almost all countries in terms of predictors of job satisfaction and employee engagement. Um, and so we have to think very carefully about how to, to leverage job autonomy. Uh, what are some practical steps you can take today to enhance the sense of job autonomy in your team and within your organization? That's what managers need to be considering. Uh, and it's, it can be hard because especially if, if, if our style of leadership is one where we like to circulate, you know, we have everyone physically together in, in a room, maybe it's an open workspace and we circulate and we can go around and we can interact with people and we can see if someone looks confused, we can walk over there and we can provide assistance. Uh, it doesn't even mean you have to be micromanaging, right? It just means, you know, sometimes people just like to have that kind of more direct interaction. Um, but there's huge value in giving people more space, allowing them to do the work the way that makes most sense to them. Uh, and ultimately, I don't really care whether someone does it the same way I would do it, as long as their outcomes are good. And so that takes a certain level of security um, as a leader and a willingness to let go of power um, and to let go of certainty a little bit because you can't control everything and just recognize you cannot control everything. And so now you're gonna look for ways to really create a culture of autonomy um, where you can delegate and people will feel accountable and they'll, they'll know that there will, be, there'll, there will be follow up and there will be accountability and they will be expected to produce good outcomes, but, but you don't really care how they get there, right? As long as they do it ethically, morally, and they follow you know, general guidelines. What are specific ways members of my team experience a greater sense of job autonomy and how can I better support them? Again, framing things in terms of support. How do I increase the autonomy? What are simple ways I can start implementing greater job autonomy in my business strategy today? What are ways my organization can start providing greater employee autonomy today? So some of this is interpersonal and how we interact with our employees, but some of it is systemic, some of it's cultural. Uh, so we have to think about the organization, the systems, processes, procedures, the structures that are in place that may inhibit autonomy. Because uh, even a well-meaning uh, manager, if they're within a context in a system that kind of forces them to get all up in their, their employees' business all the time, then it could be very difficult to have meaningful autonomy. Um, working from home and schedule flexibility. Uh, within the work orientations ISSP data, there's awesome variables uh, about a range of different um, work-life balance types of factors. Uh, and these are so relevant to the COVID remote workforce um, context today. Uh, if, if, I have, if I'm uh, managing a remote team and I am um, trying to figure out how to do that effectively, um, I think one of the first things I need to realize is, yes, they're working from home. That's kind of the definition of remote teams. They don't have to be at home, they could be anywhere, but most people are gonna be at home, especially in, in quarantine and lockdown. 
Um, but even pre-COVID, the data shows there's tremendous value in allowing people um, to have at least some of their work week where they can work from home. Uh, and so you can see a range of questions there um, that we can to, to reflect on you know, what we could do as leaders to better create that environment. Um, schedule flexibility is one that I think we definitely need to consider both in a traditional workplace setting, but also today in the COVID environment. Uh, again, lots of data that shows the value of, of workplace um, scheduling flexibility across industries, across sectors, across um, job levels and types, across different organizational sizes, across the globe. People like schedule flexibility. And when you have greater levels of schedule flexibility um, and less rigidity, uh, people tend to be more engaged. They tend to be more motivated. They tend to have greater satisfaction. They tend to have greater organizational commitment. Um, so think about the COVID environment right now. I guess my question is why wouldn't an, a manager allow almost unlimited scheduling flexibility in this environment? Now, there are some situations where you need people on the clock at certain times. If, they're, if, if people are, are basically a remote um, call center and they're, they're answering customer support calls and those sorts of things from home, of course there's gonna be shift work involved with that because you need to have coverage. You need to have um, the ability for people to get their questions answered. And there will be, even in a, a, uh, the type of jobs that a lot of us do, you know, where we're professors or we're leaders and we're working in organizations and we have, um, you know, kind of a more traditional job and it's not shift work, um, there's still gonna be synchronous meetings. You're still gonna have meetings like this. We jump on Zoom, everyone get together, let's have a discussion. That will still occur, of course. And so people have to know that expectation, they have to know that, that there's accountability for that. But outside of those synchronous elements that are important and required, for so many workers, uh, the vast majority of their time, you can allow flexibility and leaders should allow flexibility. So I don't care if, if an employee of mine gets up at three in the morning and works for five hours and then goes back to sleep or goes and works out or goes and hikes up the mountain and then comes back and works again at 9 p.m. Like, I just don't care. As long as their work gets done, um, we don't need to micromanage when they're working and what their schedules look like, uh, you know, as long as there's coverage around those synchronous elements that we need. So, of course, we need to consider how, how much is flexible schedule possible for our employees, what factors may limit the ability for uh, flexible scheduling, but think creatively because I think sometimes uh, leaders, they just get caught, you know, in the motions of, of doing the same things they've always done and the same traditional norms and expectations. And that's one of the reasons why I'm really grateful for COVID because it's forced organizations to kind of dump all of that on its head and re-examine and, and, you know, think, do, is that factor, is that policy, is that practice really necessary? Uh, is it really helpful? Does it really benefit us uh, in some way? Do, do we need to have these kind of restrictions on how employees do their work? Um, and I think most of the time, the answer is, no, that's just tradition. That's just our norm. There's no particular reason for it moving forward. And in this new environment, we can adapt. Uh, do I have any employees that are consistently late or leaving early for family-related issues? If that's the case, they would probably benefit greatly from having greater scheduling flexibility. 
Uh, I was talking to an executive recently uh, who had a, uh, an employee come in uh, to his office and, and was really sad, kind of head hanging low and said, I'm sorry, I just need to, to give you my resignation. Um, and this was a really valuable employee, someone that, um, that they didn't want to lose. They couldn't afford to lose. And so he asked, well, why? I, I thought you were happy here. I thought things were going well. And she said, she was a single mother. And she said, well, I, I, I work really hard. I, I want to do well. I, I want to, you know, create a good life for my family. Um, and I just, I can't make it work um, because I only get an hour for lunch and I have to go drop my kid off at preschool and I have to go pick up my other, other kid from kindergarten and I have to run these errands and I just can't do it in an hour. Even if I'm just scarfing down food, eating in my car, I just can't get it all done. Uh, and so then I'm going to show up late and people get upset. Um, I just can't do it. So this wise executive realizing they had no, at the time, they had no flexible scheduling um, policy or any, anything like that within the organization. And this was the first time he'd really even considered it. Uh, and when, when he heard the story, he's like, well, I can't afford to lose this valuable employee. So they sat down and they talked about it. Well, how much time would you need for lunch to be able to do everything you need to do? And she said, well, about an hour and a half would work. So for her, she was going to leave because she needed an extra half an hour. Uh, and let's be, let's be honest, in many organizations, they would have fired her because she was showing up late or they would have said, eh, sorry, an hour, that's, that's our, that's our um, policy. If you can't do it in an hour, tough. And that would have happened in many um, organizations and, she, and they would have ended up losing a great employee over a half an hour um, of just trying to deal with life, right? Um, this wise executive said, okay, we can make that work. Can you just show up a half hour early or stay a half hour late? And she said, of course I can. Uh, and everything was great. And from that, her commitment to the organization, her trust and loyalty to the leader, these were all enhanced. And she was an even uh, firmer advocate for the company moving forward, just from the simple accommodation. Um, and in a COVID environment where we're, so many people are working remotely, you know, accommodation is the name of the game and scheduling flexibility is a great way to do it. Flexibility to deal with uh, family matters. So this is another element of, of work-life balance and uh, in some ways connected to scheduling flexibility. But again, as I mentioned earlier, we have, you know, we've always talked about work-life balance or um, finding ways to just juggle everything that we have in our lives, seeing people as human, you know, their whole, their whole selves, um, recognizing that they come to work, they spend a lot of time at work, uh, but you don't own them. They're, you, you don't have complete control over their life. And they have all this other stuff that's going on that you may not see that's going to influence their, their happiness, their mental health, and their ability to be productive on the job, right? So we want to find ways to be supportive of them as much as possible. And one of those factors that I've seen over and over again as I've done these studies is the flexibility to deal with family matters. When people feel like they have flexibility, that you know what, I have my kid needs to go to the dentist um, and get a cavity filled, so I need to go take an hour off in the middle of the day. Having an organization that allows for that kind of flexibility um, makes a huge difference for employees. And in this COVID environment where we're juggling, you know, I, I have six children. Um, so my wife and I are both working from home. I have six children all in um, grade school, middle school, and high school. 
And so I'm, we're trying to help them do their, their schooling remotely. You know, that's, that's a huge amount of pressure on people. And if I, if luckily my wife and I have jobs with a lot of autonomy, with a lot of flexibility, just inherently built into them. And so we've been able to make it work and it's still been super stressful. Uh, I've talked to other friends who are about you know, kind of losing their minds because they just cannot, they're so stressed, they just can't make it work. And so we need to, to build in ways to allow that to happen. Um, I'm gonna try to wrap up here pretty quickly so we can take some time for questions. Uh, reducing work interference with family. Um, do we really need employees to work 80 hours a week? Uh, I am a firm believer in valuing the humanity of employees and not exploiting employees. If we're, if we're requiring employees to work 80 hours a week, as is the case in many industries and many firms, we're not valuing their whole self. Um, and their work isn't, is going to interfere with family. And there's a reason why some of those types of jobs have such high levels of divorce uh, amongst their employees, uh, such high levels of burnout uh, and other types of negative outcomes. Uh, so we need to, to think about what are we requiring and are we, are we, are we treating our, our people as human? And then having weekends off. Again, you know, some, in some organizations, some types of jobs, you have to have coverage. You have to have people working on weekends. Um, but there's, in, in the studies I've done, I've seen it repeatedly, that there's a benefit to having the traditional weekend off that surpasses having days off at other times during the week. So, you know, you could say, you know, you have to work Saturday, Sunday, but you get Tuesday, Wednesday off, and that's your weekend. Uh, it's not the same. It's just not the same. And because society is built around, um, you know, a five-day work week, and again, there's certain necessities, business necessities, but you need to be thinking through how can you at least rotate people through these different types of shifts? How can you not infringe on their, their home life, their family time, their ability to interact with friends, go do things that will allow them to recharge the batteries. And if they're only getting a chance to do that midweek, it's not, it's just not the same thing. Okay, so with that, um, there's a lot more detail in the research report that I shared with you earlier. Um, I also want to just provide for any of you on this call um, today or anyone who may, um, you know, you may have a colleague or someone who might benefit from having this kind of a discussion, I do want to just offer uh, a free 30-minute coaching consulting consultation um, to talk about preparing for the future of work and how do we create meaningful work through various work-life balance um, aspects, through helping uh, leverage per greater purpose within work in a virtual environment, um, creating more interesting work, and how do we design more uh, inclusive, more empowering, more uh, motivating types of jobs. Uh, anyone, feel free to le reach out to me. We can schedule a free 30-minute uh, coaching uh, consultation uh, session to, to have that kind of a discussion. And uh, feel free to refer back to uh, the consulting report to have more details. Okay, so with that, let's uh, move into questions. Here's my email. And please feel free to reach out to me offline if we don't get a chance to discuss everything today. And uh, let me stop sharing my screen and we'll move to questions. That was great. Thank you so much, Dr. Westover, uh, for that wonderful presentation. And uh, again, if anyone has any questions, feel free to 
type it in the chat bar or just simply unmute yourself or show your video and, and, and ask a question. Um, while we're waiting for that, I just want to ask if you could send me those links and I will send that out to everybody in case people didn't get a chance to copy them down, um, particularly the, the uh, link that you just had on that previous slide for the, the quick 30-minute session. If you could send that all to me via email, uh, Dr. Westover, and I'll, I'll be sure to make sure everybody gets that information. Um, um, so I, yeah, I just put it in the chat. Okay, um, so I'll put my... I'll put my email in the chat too. And the, the slide deck and the consulting report are also, those links were shared as well. So yeah, absolutely. I hope, um, I hope anyone would be willing to, to reach out if you, if you want to have further discussion. Certainly. Um, can you speak a little bit more to the, uh, you said you'll have an academic based research presentation and the, upcoming conference. Could you give a little more detail about that? Yeah, so the that presentation will be on the same topic, only I'll be presenting more on, on the methodology and, the, and more on the data. Um, so if anyone is, I, I believe it's free to attend that, isn't it? Yeah, you just have to be an ISQALS member. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I'm happy to go into that a little bit now. Uh, you know, we, we, we did thorough, um, it's a thorough series of quantitative studies. Um, and so there's a lot of um, comparative data across these countries, a lot of regression analysis. Um, you know, so, so that presentation will get more into the weeds of, you know, the structure of the data, the methodology, um, what the data actually tells us, where today I, I really kind of inferred from the data those questions, you know, to frame it that way. Um, again, my, my experience has been with leaders that when, when I present them a lot of data, some, some love the data, but my experience with a lot of, of, of leaders is a lot of them don't really even know what to do with it. Um, they don't quite understand it, especially the more complicated um, analyses. And so uh, finding ways to translate it back to them in a, in a way that is practical and they know how to understand, that's, that's, uh, that's beneficial. So that's how I framed the, the presentation today. That presentation um, at the conference will be more of a traditional academic um, presentation. Okay, great. We do have a couple of questions coming in. Um, one from just uh, from Jose de Jesus Garcia Vega. Would you like to go ahead and unmute yourself or show your video? And you can ask your question or I can read it for you. Yeah, yeah I can do that. Sure, hi Jose. Hi, you know, a long time <laughs> not see you. Uh, thank you very much. It's a really nice uh, talk, Jonathan. And, uh, you know, I've been working with these organizations and the problem we find, that we regularly find, is that uh, owners, <laughs> stockholders, are the most difficult people to convince them that uh, well, workers' well-being is, is for, for their benefit. Uh, we talk about the, the, the advantages, the, the high productivity, high innovation, but they seem to, uh, to focus only, as you said, on, 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 on profits. So is there any recommendation you have? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's hard. I, and I, I, I see this every day. Um, you just have to, I, I don't think there's any way around the kind of 
feeling for people like us, we feel like we beat our heads against the wall because it, it makes, it's just so inherent. Like it's, it makes so much sense to us. And, and, and they, they, for them, for, for executives, they, they, they're balancing all these different things and they're trying to think, well, how do I keep the doors open? And if I invest in employees this way, that means I have to take from budget somewhere else. And, you know, they, uh, especially in the U.S., it, it's this way in business generally, but especially in the U.S., we have such a short-term orientation um, towards business where we're looking at quarterly earnings and, and um, uh, shareholder reports and those sorts of things. And so we don't necessarily have a long-term sustainability mentality as much as I think we should. And, and all of what we just discussed is a long-term, it requires a long-term mentality because it takes initial investment up front that will, play, that will pay long-term dividends down the line. Uh, and that can be hard to convince uh, leaders of that because all they see is higher uh, labor costs, higher you know, people-oriented costs, uh, and they, they don't necessarily see the benefit or the ROI. So anytime we can bring it back to speaking the business language and, and talking about return on investment and talking about the productivity gains, and we can show you know, we, we can do pilot studies and we can show like when we implemented this new approach and working with our employees and having meaningful work, we saw sales increase by whatever, or we saw customer retention and uh, loyalty increased by this amount. And that translated to this dollar amount. Um, and so you have an ROI. Uh, when we can communicate it that way, that's when we can't have a better chance of, of getting leverage because even, even the most kind of well, I, I hate to say it this way, but let's just say like a hard-hearted executive, like someone who just doesn't care <laughs> about the human side, even the most hard-hearted executive, if you can show them like a tremendous ROI on investing in people, they'd be stupid not to do it. Um, because just like any other form of investment, you know, they're going to do what has the biggest gains. So I think we have to try to talk in those, in those ways. Yeah, I think so. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Great, we have another question from uh, Daniela Andren. You're welcome to... Hello, uh, thank you for the presentation. I would like to know a little bit briefly about the sample selection of your data and if you can say something more. Uh, you know, uh, I mean now about inference and if uh, uh, you just now, you are focusing only on correlations or, or, or any intention to identify causality, thank you. Yeah, great question. Uh, again, there will be more um, detail on this in the in the presentation that I do later this summer uh, on all the methodology. Uh, but really quickly, the the International Social Survey is a consortium of researchers across the globe, and so there are um, researchers uh, within each partner country that carry out the study. You know, they have one one survey that is agreed upon and then translated into various languages and then they administer it um, within that, that country. In each country, it's a, a, a stratified randomized probability sample. And uh, the, I think overall between the 37 countries, I had something like about 30,000 respondents uh, in that range. So a little under a thousand per country on average. Um, you know, and then and then you have lots of different demographic variables, so you can um, you can slice the data and look and make comparisons and such. Uh, and then uh, from from that data, um, yeah, we did correlations and we did you know traditional descriptive analyses, 
mean differences, those sorts of things. Um, but also we did order trophic regression, we did ordinary least squared regression, uh, and so some of those types of analyses. Uh, and I've, I've also done hierarchical linear regression, um, you, you know, looking at um, the differences between within organization context to um, uh, of, of employee um, factors, you know, that are salient to um, job satisfaction, but then also national context um, to see the different drivers that might influence um, influence uh, the differences that we see across countries, because there are significant differences across countries. Um, and, and sometimes it's quite surprising. So, so there's, and, and one, one thing I take away from that too, that is worth mentioning here is the importance of not falling into the trap of, of just feeling like a kind of a wet, a Western centric model of understanding work is adequate to understand the experience of workers across the globe. Um, because it's just not true. And when you look like in, in my model that I developed, that's, that it is admittedly a largely a Western centric model based on, you know, literature review and a lot of previous research that's been done in the area around engagement and job satisfaction. When you apply that same kind of model across uh, different socio-political and, um, uh, uh, different, uh, contexts and economic contexts. Uh, you just see tremendous differences. Uh, and there are countries where, you know, you might expect, you know, where, where there's low levels of engagement or satisfaction, uh, but they have better, like the context is better, you know, but, and so, so it raises the question, well, why? And there's other countries like Mexico or the Philippines where they're, you know, some, sometimes the situation for workers is not as ideal uh, as it might be say in the U S or in Western Europe uh, in a lot of ways. And, but they're, they're, they're happier, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're more satisfied with what the way their work is and they're more engaged. Um, and so, so some of the research tries to better understand the different, the reasons for those differences across, uh, across the globe. Okay. Thank you. Only a fast, fast clarification, because from your answer, it seems that you focus on job satisfaction. And uh, my question now is like for me, job satisfaction, it's a domain satisfaction and general life satisfaction is more like synonymous with well-being. And in that perspective, maybe you will uh, cover more during uh, your scientific presentation. But anyway, you just now, you mentioned a lot of the job satisfaction. Thank you. Yes, yes, um, I'll, and I'll also, I, this isn't specific to this presentation or the one I'll do later this summer, but uh, I have done um, other studies that have looked at the connection between job satisfaction and life satisfaction. And uh, there's a huge, um, huge connection there uh, with employees spending the vast majority of their waking hours at work. Um, you know, it has serious implications for their overall life satisfaction um, you know, depending on their workplace relationships, uh, their intrinsic and extrinsic motivators and such. Um, so I think it's really important that we look at both. Great. Um, we have another question. We, we do have some time for, from R and G Gilworth. If you are wanting to ask that question yourself, go ahead. Yeah, it's, uh, it's Jill Gilworth here. Um, thank you for a great presentation. I was, you, you've actually half answered my question already. I was interested in the differences that you found between the countries um, that you studied uh, in relation to sort of how uh, how much 
uh, flexible working was sort of embedded in the culture of work and investment in employees' well-being. I think you've partly answered that already, but if you could expand on that, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. I, I think as, as we might suspect, um, you know, just you know, we're, we're all people that work in this realm, right? And, and so we understand um, socioeconomic and geopolitical differences, cultural differences across the globe. Um, you know, looking at the conditions in China versus the conditions in South Africa, the conditions in Western Europe, Mexico, Canada, whatever, right? Um, the bottom line is that there are factors that seem to be pretty universally important. Uh, and I mentioned that earlier, uh, interesting work, meaningful work, um, work that benefits society. Um, these, these types of um, variables uh, are, are very significant and important across almost every country. Um, but the, the, their predictive power within the model um, does vary across country. Uh, and so uh, the other thing I should say too is, is in terms of the variation of predictability of the model across countries, um, you know, there, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. To China, for example, though, if, if I'm remembering correctly off the top of my head, you know, my, my, uh, my predictive model has an adjusted R squared of about 25. 0.25. Um, so 25% of the variability um, is predicted through, you know, this kind of Western centric model. Um, compare that with like some of the Nordic countries, Denmark, um, Norway, uh, where the model predicts closer to 70% of the variation. Uh, and, and, and then, you know, more, most countries fall somewhere in the 40 to 50% range. Um, and so even though you have similarities across some of these variables that are super important across countries, um, the overall model predictability is different, the overall, um, uh, the, the, the coefficient strength is different, right, um, in what we see. And, and then there are other areas where there's, there can be tremendous difference, um, where uh, like workplace stress, for example, is, is a factor that's very salient and predictive uh, in some countries and, and just, it's just not in others. Um, which to me, you know, is, is a little bit surprising because workplace stress, you know, is, is one of the things, you know, anecdotally for me, that's one of the things that influences me the most. Um, you know, when stress is high, uh, you know, anxiety is high, then, and, then my satisfaction engagement levels can go down, my productivity decreases. Um, so yeah, there, I mean, there's, there's a lot that we can get into on that, but I'll just, I'll provide that as a brief answer right now. Do you have time for one more question? Sure. And I, uh, Susan Schuster, if you wanted to ask, you have great questions if you wanted to ask. Hey there, everyone. Hello from Minnesota. Hello. <laughs> so I had a question just on the, most recent question before the last one. Uh, when you're talking about life satisfaction, are you also broadening that out to, as you look at life and work, kind of overall well-being? Are you using like the full well-being measures, which I know there are many ways to measure that, uh, because I feel like one way that employers have really responded to investing in their human capital is through offering healthcare and offering wellness plans. 
So I was just curious how the physical well-being has played into the thoughts that I've seen today. Uh, I loved your presentation. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Good question. Um, so, you know, using secondary data, um, I am limited to what I can do. Um, so there are variables that are related to um, wellness programs um, within the work orientations. Uh, so that's something you could explore uh, that's not specifically within the model um, that I ran uh, or, you know, was, was talking about today, um, though, though uh, certainly that's an important factor. So, so my main outcome variable um, in the analyses that I've been referring to has been job satisfaction. And of course, there's limitations to that. Um, and there are other factors that would also be really great to look at. And it's, simple, it's simply a limitation of the existing secondary data that's available. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Great. Well, I think that's all the questions that we have time for. Um, really wonderful presentation and great uh, questions from everyone. I, I really appreciate your time, Dr. Westover. Thank you so much. And we'll look forward to your presentation coming up at the conference, hopefully. Um, to everyone else, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, again, I'll be sending out a, a, a link to this recorded uh, webinar at the end of later on today once it's up on our YouTube page um, and just look forward to that information. Um, if you have any questions, please do contact us at office at iskwells.org. Otherwise, we hope to see all of you engaging in our online conference in a couple of weeks and uh, throughout the, the rest of the year. So thank you again, everyone. Thank you again, Dr. Westover, and I uh, hope everyone stays well and healthy. Thanks, everyone. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.